Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998, in Trenton at 479-4269 or Parley at gmail.com. It is 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts, Alan Sprague, and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. And on the internet at WERU.org, Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your Rusty Anchors, Mike Joyce, and Alan Sprague. Boat Talk attempts to bring the, the water waves to the airwaves, and we have all sorts of uh, local news and world news, and uh, of course, call in too. I'll give you the number right off the bat if you'd like to join the conversation. one 625 9378 is the number into Boat Talk. Water waves and airwaves, that's almost as good as turn your phone into a microphone, man. That's <laughs> yeah. good. I like that. We, we might be able to use that with our marketing department. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, we'll soon probably we, make thousands off of that. As soon as we get a marketing department. Thousands of clams. And think of something to market, yeah. yeah. Last month, uh, we talked uh, about a, uh, a rescue right here locally that happened with Larry Albee giving a description of saving a... I'll say saving a, a, a young fellow who was out fishing in his um, about 30, 20-foot um, aluminum uh, outboard that uh, was in rough seas and flipped over, and he was uh, sitting on top of his overturned outboard boat. Uh, the boat swamped because uh, his engine, the outboard, became tangled in uh, some lobster gear. It got hung up, and again, it was rough. Yep. Um, boat probably went sideways and swamped. Well, it went actually stern too because of the what the line. Even had better, fetched. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, William Turner wrote in after hearing that report. Is uh, William says uh, not a fisherman, but I do have a small twenty foot outboard and have spent some time in our coastal waters. Have been snagged more than once on lobster buoys. My very first response is to gaff the offending line and walk it to the bow thereby orienting the bow into the seas and wind. Tie it off to the bow and then go aft and deal with the snag. Maybe not so easy on a large vessel, but on a smaller boat, often not that difficult to do and could be very well make the difference between a major inconvenience and a major 
a minor inconvenience and a major catastrophe. Nice move. I like it. Yeah, if you got yeah. enough scope to do that, that certainly is a good thing to do. Yes, right. Yeah, and again, your boat is supposed to be oriented into the waves. It doesn't Works sit much good sideways way, yeah. or backwards, which yeah. are the other ways that it'll like to end up. Yeah. That's how you get in trouble. Well, thank you, William, for that comment. Um, and also, we were talking about the uh, sinking and the report on the El Faro uh, that came in mm-hmm. just a while ago. Skip Fraley wrote about that. He said, I have several Maine Maritime Academy friends who had worked on the El Faro who said her condition overall was very poor. This included rust holes that went through the second deck, and they were happy to be transferred to other ships in two years before her demise. It was a tragic loss of life and plenty to be learned from this. Uh, Point we've been making on boat talk forever. Uh, The American Merchant Marine is a bit of a phantom fleet. Um, we have what's called the, the reserve fleet. We have a military reserve fleet of boats that are mothballed. Boats don't like to be mothballed. My uncle is a chief engineer, main maritime academy graduate who works on them. It's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a joke. uh, It's pretty impressive when we go down the intercoastal and see them all lined up along there. Again, there's lots of them and, uh, but no, they don't come back to, uh, activity very easy at all, but but in terms of ocean-going um, uh, ships that haul goods, uh, cargo containers and, and uh, tankers and all that, no, it's mostly foreign flagged for lots of good reasons nowadays, including not having to pay American seamen. And uh, up and down the coast is on American bottoms. And uh, that qualifies, again, with the Puerto Rico. Uh, that's why that boat was going back and forth to Puerto Rico and had an American flag on it, an American flag, uh, flag territory there but a bit of a special case, and perhaps while they were milking that gig, they weren't putting the money into the boat, which is never a good idea. Yeah, that's always a bad idea. You're right. We do have a phone call, so let's uh, let's go to Captain Yo. Good morning, Yo. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. Thank you. I saw a thing on uh, TV news yesterday about a surfer in Ireland who wound up offshore and... Coast Guard rescued him 13 miles from shore Ooh. with a helicopter. And they talked about what a nutty, extreme sportif he was. And they talked about the brave Coast Guardsmen and the hazardous rescue and all that. But they didn't really touch on the circumstances of him winding up that far from shore. Now, it seems to me that you surf in a place where there's an onshore breeze and an onshore swell. And if that's the case... I mean, he didn't paddle 13 miles offshore. Anyway, um, I'd be curious if somebody had heard something else about that or had some kind of idea about what could have happened. Was it possibly a stand-up board as opposed to a uh, a lay on it and paddle it surfboard? No, no, this guy was a curl surfer. This was a surfboard surfboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had on a wetsuit and all, so I guess he could stay warm, but apparently he was out there for 30 hours. Ooh. There was. Can uh, you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to know that the, what currents might be happening in the area there too. But yeah, yeah. There was film on the TV this morning of a fella. I believe he was off of New Jersey. Uh, he looked to be a mile or two off the uh, shore. Might even been Atlantic City. Big buildings in the background there. A uh, humpback whale surfaced like twenty, thirty feet right next to him. He went wow, and then started paddling towards the land. 
<laughs> I would. I would. Me thank three. you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Well, thank you, Captain Yo. Thanks, Yo. We might talk about that climate change later, and maybe we'll have to talk to you again. We'll so, talk uh, about being out at sea anytime. with a, a couple of women here coming up pretty soon, too. Yeah. And, um, oh, we got a bunch of stuff this morning. I've got a book here we're going to read uh, in a little while, not, not quite right away, but it's called The Water Will Come, Jeff Goodell. Uh, rising seas and sinking cities and the remaking of the civilized world. Uh, it's uh, quite well done and, again, reinforces an uh, ongoing theme. We've been talking about the theme of uh, global warming all along here and trying to make uh, an ongoing series of points, including no, it's not, is not an argument. Um, you know, uh, fog is more powerful than, uh, uh, clear vision sometimes. Uh, doubt is, uh, a, uh, wonderful thing to, uh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, trying to confuse people, fog and doubt works beautiful. Uh, and, uh, saying yeah. the phone's ringing again. Yeah, we have another we'll phone answer call. that right away then. Okay. Let's go to Mark in Bar Harbor. Good morning, Mark. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Just sure. a note, uh, I'm an old guy, and I surfed years ago, but um, onshore wind blowing three or four days to blow up a really big swell, and then when the wind shifts to offshore, it stands the waves up, and you get a beautiful curl. So best conditions are big swell, but an offshore wind to make the waves stand up. Huh. How Go much ahead. How much windage does a person have on, on a curl board, though? He must be fairly well, low. you've got to get outside. And, you know, if it's blowing 25 and you're outside the curl waiting for a big wave, it's easy to uh, start to get uh, blown outside. Huh. And uh, good, good strong, you know, and the further you get offshore, the more the wind blows. Whoa. Going to have to start carrying EPIRBs. <laughs> a new, new uh, regulation for the government. Yeah. Mark, where's your uh, favorite place to go surfing ever? My favorite place was uh, Cape Cod because it had a long, slow break. And, uh, yeah, I, I ran into some hurricane surf there. It would stand up 15 feet. Ooh. You've heard about the uh, Petticodiac River, have you? I, I ha Is that out in Oregon? No. Um, the uh, We talked about this last year on Boat Talk. One of the newest, uh, uh, most recent hotspots in the world is the Tidal Bore that runs up at the top of Bay of Fundy, the river that runs up to Moncton. Oh, yeah. Has a standing wave that goes up it on the tide that if you can get on top of that standing wave, you have one of the world's most uh, interesting rides ever. But if you get off of that wave, you are in a very bad place in between very steep, muddy banks with a lot of water raging by you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll pass on that. Yeah, yeah. River again. We'll it's extreme. It's extreme surfing. It's a tidal wave. Uh, it's literally a tidal wave. Love that one. Uh, pun yeah. pun for me now. Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> River runs from the top of the Bay of Fundy up to Moncton, New Brunswick. Whoa. Just in case you can't get you know <laughs> down to Cape Cod, it's closer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my surfing days are over. <laughs> I'm with you. All right, man. Thanks for calling this Thanks morning. Thanks for calling, Mark. Yeah. We are doing boat talks morning. It's going to be sort of a potpourri. We'll talk about that uh, climate change in a little while. Um, we uh, let's go offshore for a minute. Um, the right whales are dying off, awful, uh, awful quickly right now. We'll do this real quick and then uh, we'll get to the phone. 
There are, by all accounts, 451 right whales on the eastern seaboard here, and this year they found 16 of them dead. That's 3%. They also say that the uh, reproduction rate is down, yeah. like 40% since 2010. They don't know what's happening. And uh, the nine of those uh, found dead in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, three off of Newfoundland, and three in Cape Cod Bay. Right, yes. Yeah. A lot of them for ships from ship strikes, and that, I believe, is preventable, but it's going to take a, a lot of effort to, to put in all those slocum gliders to tell where they are. something wrong with the whales, though, yeah. you know, uh, no so, doubt about it. Yeah, let's, let's go to um, Kyle, who down in Machias, who is uh, going to tell us about the uh, down east... Um, down, Down East Institute. Thank you, Kyle. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Um, I work at the Down East Institute, which is a nonprofit uh, organization located on Great Wasp Island, uh, Beals Island. And uh, we have a goal of improving the quality of life in Down East and Coastal Maine through stock enhancement of economically important bivalve species, primarily soft-shell clams. Uh, we are currently working on putting about $3 million through the hatchery today. Um, we also do marine research on a suite of different topics, uh, primarily focused on aquaculture, but um, really anything uh, to do with uh, marine resources. And uh, we also have an educational component. Uh, we're the Marine Field Station for the University of Maine at Machias. Um, we have kids from Beals Island uh, Elementary here every week uh, for an hour, which is amazing. Uh, Moments from now, the young skippers from Narragwigas High School will be here to help us uh, with this monumental task of bringing in all of our clam seed. And uh, we also have summer camps during the summer. Sounds pretty interesting, Kyle. I also noticed from uh, something on the table here, this is all brand new. Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. Um, we essentially were started in 1987 as the Beals Island Regional Shellfish Hatchery um, with the goal of just producing soft-shell clam seed for local communities. Uh, in 2003, we uh, changed to the Downey Institute and really expanded our, our mission uh, and moved into a much larger facility. And what's really exciting right now is that we are in the midst of an almost $6 million expansion to create the easternmost marine research laboratory in the United States uh, to hopefully bring people here from all over the world and also to expand our hatchery production. Um, the demand for clam seed is through the roof. Um, people are really opening their eyes and seeing that there, there's a problem, but there is somewhat of a solution. Hmm. Kyle, you managed this. Uh, you mentioned this as a uh, uh, basically a private concern, and and you also mentioned uh, Beals and clams. Uh, Dr. Brian Beals is a uh, uh, Beals boy who's quite famous in that area. He's uh, University of Machias nowadays, isn't he? He is. He's our he's our director of research here, so he's kind of the boss. Um, I'm a former student of his, and I've learned all my clam knowledge from him, uh, which is, uh, he has a lot of it. All connected. Good thing. So you're making some new buildings. You've got some um, uh, grants, I guess, and yeah, so, a partnership with the university. And um... mm -hmm. So re really, um, someone in your local area there, the Next Generation Foundation in Blue Hill, uh, gave us a very generous contribution and really got this ball rolling. Um, we were able to leverage funds from the state of Maine uh, in 2014, the last bond initiative with the Marine uh, Infrastructure Bond, uh, which we were able to use to double our money, and then the Harold Alfond Association kicked in some money to build our residence hall. So we're, we're really ex 
excited, and it is a real mess here right now. <laughs> I noticed from your handout here you're training teachers, but you spoke of having a bunch of kids coming today. Yeah, uh, we, we have a lot of kids in and out. Uh, every week we have um, a, every child from Beals Elementary School comes here for an hour, which is, which is a great uh, experience for them. We do summer camps. Uh, this afternoon, I'll be catching the tide in Gouldsboro and working with some summer high, Sumner High School students to pull out clam nets and sample them and uh, do some, some co-management. Kyle, careful with them kids. You don't know what sticks to them or, or yeah. you know. Making I, a lot of good things. I'll tell you, there, there's some good workers out there, and yeah. uh, the future future looks bright. Yeah, it's, uh, we call it the boat talk question. It works when you're interviewing uh, musicians, too. You just change the term, and basically it's what happened to you when you was young, messed you up about clams, son, you know. <laughs> well, I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. Not many clams there. <laughs> there you go. So, um Pardon my ignorance, I, I've never planted clams before, but I assume when you say clam seeds, you're just talking about very small little clams, mm-hmm. the sides of seeds. How do you plant those? Yeah, so um, the seed we produce, typically what we will we'll feed is anything over 8 millimeters, uh, so about a quarter of an inch. And, you know, it is very similar to putting grass seed on your lawn. Uh, you have to select a site, and um, most of the work we do is with municipalities, so it's up to the municipality to decide where they'd like it to go but we're helping with some research to help them along with the selection process. Uh, And basically what you do is you have these big nets um, that are made of uh, extruded plastic, and it's a 4.2-millimeter mesh, and we put a couple floats on them, toggles, and they're 14 feet by 14 feet. So you basically lay this big net out on the mud, trace a line around it, and then you take a bag of seed clams and sprinkle it out just like you're putting grass seed down in your lawn, and then you cover it up with the net and... Gosh, if you if you do your homework and you do everything right, you could see eighty percent of those babies make it and uh, really triple your money within two to three years. Hmm. Um, so, but you know the the real benefit to to seeding clams is not in going and digging those clams back up, which is great. But those clams are going to put a, a biomass of animals into the water when they spawn that never should have existed. Um, so really investing in seed as a municipality is the future of of your industry. Kyle, it sounds like you're talking about something that's in between um, uh, academia and the real world of of the pay and fishery, um, which is a pretty pretty interesting, uh, vital, vital place to be in. And again, it's a time of change. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, conservation is is necessary. Um, We can't just go out and expect to dig as much as we want and it's a changing world um and you know we just have to change with the times and uh one of our goals is really just to to be there for the the fishing community and to help them along uh there there are a lot of very simple ways to do this and uh we just try and show them how gonna be reading in a little bit kyle you'll probably be busy doing something else but uh a book called The Water Will Come Here, and, and the thesis is that we have already put enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that is not going to fall back out, and it's a done deal. We are changing now. It's just a question of how much and how fast. Right, yeah. Uh, ocean acidification is real, and it will have an impact. Um, luckily for me, at a, at a, as a shellfish hatchery guy, um, it's kind of like job security because we can buffer our seawater to get the animals through the most sensitive part of their life, um, and once they have gone from their larval stage to their, their benthic stage, um, they're much better at laying down shell. The shell's much thicker, um, so you can counteract the effects of, of ocean acidification. But, yeah, it's, it's a scary thought. 
How's the overall uh, health of the clam fishery right now? Well, uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of predators in our water. The invasive green crab, which is uh, a huge problem. Um, if, if you don't net the hatchery seed or protect the wild seed, those crabs are just eating them up. Uh, so green crabs will eat them um, when they're small. And then as they get larger, there's another predator that's very, very prolific in, in the mid-coast and southern part of the state called a milky ribbon worm. And those babies scare me um, because there's not a lot of ways to protect against them. Uh, and they'll wait till the clams get to be about an inch large before they eat them. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, kind of a scary worm. It, they grow to be like 8, 10 feet long. Ooh. Uh, but they're very thin ribbon, and I encourage uh, diggers when they see them to throw them up to a seagull or something because those babies eat a lot of clams. Um, and I'm guessing the other uh, uh, mussel fishery, worms, again, uh, all in the same kind of boat? Um, mussels are... I don't know if they're preyed on by the, by the Milky River worms. I don't think so because they're, they're not in the mud and the worms try not to expose themselves, but green crabs, absolutely. Um, crabs nail, nail mussels. Yeah, you work, in, you work in the worms too? The little, I mean, digging uh, sand, sand blood, blood uh, worms? We, is we a... haven't done much uh, work with worms, no, um, but, you know, we could get into that game. Again, it's a you know it's a paying gig that people uh, do down east, and and any paying gig down east is a good thing. So. Absolutely, yeah. Kyle, very interesting to talk to you this morning. When Alan told me we were talking to the folks from the institute down to Beals Island, I there's no institutes east <laughs> Ellsworth. Come on. Oh, it, it's really. I, I encourage uh, you to check out our website website downeastinstitute.org, um, and. Uh, We'll be we we give public tours every day. Uh, although we have postponed them due to the construction, it's you're really, building you're building the new campus, so to speak. We are. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's going to be state of the art. Uh, there's going to be um, flowing seawater labs, um, genetics labs, office spaces. There's an 18 bed residence hall. Uh, really, really cool stuff. And smiling, happy kids running around too. So yeah, <laughs> loads of kids. Nice, nice picture, Kyle. Thank you very much. All right, you're welcome. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye now. Bye. Yeah, the Down East Institute, DEI. I'm going to have to drive down there one of these days and check it out. Yeah, that could be very interesting. Until next spring. While we're uh, mentioning the uh, uh, clams, mussels, and uh, bloodworms there, let's also uh, comment on the Gulf of Maine lobster landings this season. Oh, yeah. It ain't good. No, things are down. It ain't good at all. Um, The graph of lobster landings has been, uh, it's a heck of a good ski jump, okay? It's been going up, 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 and it just come down. Yeah. Over topped up and uh, come down. Last year, they caught over 130 million pounds of lobster. This year, 30 million of those pounds didn't come ashore. 30 uh, out of 130 million uh, is... I mean, they caught that much less. Yeah, it's quite a bit. Lost. Uh, yeah, almost a third uh, of the uh, catch down. Uh, um, yeah, a little bit less than that down. Yeah. Not good at all. Um, not only did they catch 30 million pounds less, but the price was down a good bit. I can't understand that. It seems like... Demand has slacked off yeah. and, and somehow, but at the same time, the price of fuel and bait has gone up. Yeah. So that's good, right? That's handy, isn't it? No, that's that's on the wrong side of the equation there. Yeah. Um, the scientists are doing surveys, and they are very worried about the amount of young uh, settling lobsters, they call them, the, the juvenile settle. Mm. And they're, they're um, very concerned about the uh, amount and where they are settling. They can't find them inshore, so they've started to look offshore for them, and they see some out there. 
but they're not sure, having never looked out there before, if this is a new thing or not, if they're moving offshore because the water's getting warmer, Mm -hmm. you know. Warmer water. Uh, We talked about the green crab there. The green crab is stimulated by the warmer water. So the warmer water, whether the clams care or not, it's uh, bad for the people that eat them. And, again, the the whole thing is connected and, and with the lobsters, too. The fishermen, as opposed to the uh, scientists, notice that they're throwing lots of shorts back that they want to catch next year. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll work next, we'll year, but, next year. But if the babies don't follow them, it takes about seven years to grow lobster, it seems. Yep. And, uh, you know, that was... Um, Oh, uh, almost half a billion dollars in the state of Maine last year, $533 million. Uh, but uh, not this year. That was last year. And, again, we uh, possibly have peaked. Some people think it was just this year. Things go in cycles. And, again, we are saying things is changing, mm. you know. Yeah. And when they go, they might not come back. Um, so we've reached peak lobster. Huh? Well, that's, uh, again, that's one way to look at it. Now, uh, here's another uh, very alarming statistic for you. David Cousins is the uh, head of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. He said it cut his income this year at about half. Ooh. Okay. Those lobstermen have been buying new boats. They've been building new boats. They've been buying lots of traps. They've been they've been spending their money. New trucks, okay? New piers, even. Oh, boy. And guess what? You cut your income in half, and you stop buying a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, it's all connected. It's, a, it's an ecosystem, uh, you know. So, Gulf of Maine lobster landings uh, way, way down this year. And we'll see whether or not that remains to be a, a future trend going on or it's uh you know <clears throat> so we are doing boat talk this morning uh you can give them the phone number we'll talk to anybody that calls but yep. you can call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, which is the same as one eight six 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 two five w e r u isn't that handy yeah you right. can uh email too if you'd rather uh, not go online or you can um, not go on the phone. You can go to email at boattalk at gmail.com. Now, I've uh, talked about it enough to about halfway through the program. Might as well get to this book here, The Water Will Come, Jeff Goodall. And uh, this is uh, related to, again, we've been talking uh, climate change on Boat Talk all along and been saying that uh, you can throw crap at anything. But no, it's not, is not a valid scientific argument. Um, Creating doubt uh, is a wonderful thing for avoiding liability, you know, and uh, taking action. And uh, it's been frightfully effective. The uh, evidence is around you, the hurricane season, the fires in California, you know, uh, again, uh, uh, look around. Things is changing. And uh, so anyway, will it... uh, uh, yeah, uh, and, and again, who is um, who's admitting what? This uh, climate science special report just came out. Thirteen government agencies, including people like uh, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, NASA, and the Department of Energy, among others, have all agreed that climate change is extremely, quote, extremely likely to be caused by human activity and will get worse without major omission cuts, and that there is, quote, no convincing alternative explanation. United States government. Yep. You know, 
unequivocal as it can be. The great leader still thinks it's a Chinese plot. We still got uh, Scott Pruitt at the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and there's a new science advisor who's just been hired. Don't believe in it either, but the facts are so. And again, you know, uh, the fastest rise in 1,700 years or more. Um, they are saying that as uh, predicting several inches in the next 20 years, as much as one to four feet by 2100. At the same time, they're allowing that while it could be one to four feet of, uh, of uh, ocean level raise uh, in the next 100 years, it could also be eight feet. They're also predicting that the, the uh Polar ice crash, the North Pole ice might entirely go away by 2050. And again, unintended consequences. Sail to the uh, North Pole. Start to cascade. Uh, this uh, climate science special report is uh, part of the ongoing uh, mandated uh, uh, assessment report they've been putting out. It contains no new news and no policy recommendations. <laughs> well, let's see what Yo recommends. Good morning, Yo. Welcome back. Hi, thank you. It's often said that climate change is caused by human activity, but that generally is taken to mean the sum total of all activity of all humans around the planet and its global effect. Well, I'd like to know if anyone else has seen puzzling evidence to the effect that there are some people who are deliberately trying to change the climate. Thanks again for putting on this program, and thanks to everyone for um, supporting Community Radio. Could you expand on who's trying to expand the climate, uh, change the climate, how, why? Who and why? Um, well, who would? Who would want to alter the climate for some reason? I, I've heard, and this is wild... Internet speculation that there is a uh, United States uh, military project called HARP, H-A-A-R-P, that is uh, somehow trying to control weather in certain weather areas. Weather weaponization yes. is not mentioned in the climate discussion. Now, I knew when I was a kid, I remember sitting in my preschool, not preschool, but lower school library, looking at photographs of U.S. Air Force planes seeding clouds. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. We can actually sprinkle something in the clouds to make them do what we want. Now, um, I'm pretty sure they didn't ever quit doing that. Maybe (laughs) they just stopped publishing pictures of it. But it certainly is nothing new to me. I think what we may be experiencing is cumulative effect. Our sky here on the island was crisscrossed with trails the other day that expanded and shimmered and by the end of the day turned into an overcast. So it may not be the spinning planet that's making me dizzy. It could be like silver nitrate particles or some such. Well, um, maybe both. Maybe many, both. many things that are, <laughs> that are falling on us all every day. Yeah. Uh, is it speculation or is there actual evidence? Does it happen? I read a thing saying that strange sparks that appeared in the middle of objects started the fires in California. Um, Is that crazy conspiracy theory, or is it a valid report from somebody who was standing right there and saw his house explode? Oh, there's always... I can't tell from over here. All I can say is, wow, that's a very interesting report, because that's another report of strange atmospheric effects nobody's ever seen before, 
And that just correlates with this radar work that they're doing. It's not a secret anymore. It's just forbidden to discuss it. Well, thanks again for putting on this program. Thank you, Joe. We we appreciate the stimulation. Yo, uh, going to read you now from uh, this book here, The Water Will Come, The Rising Seas and Sinking Cities and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Jeff Goodell, who is a uh, editor also at Rolling Stone Magazine, has a couple other books out. And uh, once again, we're about half past Boat Talk this morning. one this is from the prologue of The Water Will Come, and uh, we are talking, let me be right clear off off the bat here, this is a projection of the great Miami hurricane of 2037, 20 years from now, okay? This is a bit of a projection in the future of the prologue here of this book, The Water Will Come. After the hurricane hit Miami in 2037, a foot of sand covered the famous bow tie floor in the lobby of the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. A dead manatee floated in the pool where Elvis had once swum. Most of the damage came not from the hurricane's 175-mile-an-hour winds, but from the 20-foot storm surge that overwhelmed the low-lying city. In South Beach, historic Art Deco buildings were swept off their foundations. Mansions on Star Island were flooded up to their cut-glass doorknobs. A 17-mile stretch of Highway A1A that ran along the famous beaches up to Fort Lauderdale, disappeared completely into the Atlantic. The storm knocked out wastewater treatment plant on Virginia Key, forcing the city to dump hundreds of millions of gallons of raw sewage into Biscayne Bay, and the stench of human excrement stoked fears of Corolla. More than 300 people died, many of them swept away by the surging waters that submerged much of Miami Beach and Fort Lauderdale. Thirteen people were killed in traffic accidents, as they scrambled to escape the city after the news spread, falsely it turned out, that one of the nuclear reactors at Turkey Point, an aging power plant 24 miles south of Miami, had been heavily damaged by the storm and had sent a radioactive cloud floating over the city. Untrue. All big hurricanes are disastrous, but this one was unexpectedly bad. With sea levels more than a foot higher than they'd been at the dawn of the century, much of South Florida was wet and vulnerable even before the storm hit. Because of the higher water, the storm surge pushed deeper into the region than anyone had imagined it could, falling up drainage canals and flooding homes and strip malls several miles from the coast. Despite newly elevated runways, Miami International Airport was shut down for 10 days. Salt water shorted out underground electrical wiring, leaving parts of Miami-Dade County dark for weeks and contaminated municipal drinking wells, leaving thousands of people scrambling for bottled water that was airdropped by the National Guard. And then the mosquitoes started to breed. You know, uh, this is, again, uh, a projection 20 years from now of a hurricane that hasn't quite happened yet, but uh, tell me if that sounds fairly unbelievable or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of, uh, another thesis in this book is most of the scientists are are uh, very alarmed, as they say, it could possibly be one to four feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, but it could be eight, and they're not saying it could be none, okay? Oh, yeah, right. Um, they, are, they are, if anything, possibly under-exaggerating. And uh, again, from um, the same prologue to The Water Will Come, the best way is to save coastal cities is to quit burning fossil fuels. But even if we ban 
coal, gas, and oil tomorrow, we won't be able to turn down Earth's thermostat immediately. For one thing, carbon dioxide is not like other kinds of air pollution, such as chemicals that cause smog, which go away as soon as you stop dumping them into the sky, like we did with catalytic converters. A good fraction of the CO2 emitted today will stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years. That means that even if we did reduce CO2 tomorrow, we can't shut off the warming from the CO2 we've already dumped into the air. Quote, The climatic impacts of releasing fossil fuel CO2 to the atmosphere will last longer than Stonehenge, says scientist David Archer. Longer than time capsules, longer than nuclear waste, longer, far longer than the age of human civilization. We've already done it, is the thesis of this book. Boy. And, and what the, what the, uh, see the, okay. what the uh, big question is, is how fast is it, not whether it's happening, but how fast, and then how graciously we can elevate and move inland. How fast we can react. Yes. Well, but let's hold that and uh, go to a whole different subject of a, a conference coming up next month in, uh, down in... Bath, put on by Maine Built Boats. I believe we have John Johansson on the phone right now. Good morning, John. How are you? Good, good. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah. Um, why don't you go ahead and uh, talk about the uh, the conference you have coming up on December 7th? Yeah, the conference we got coming up has four speakers, and we're talking on, uh, let's see, there's a roundtable on Volvo Penta, uh, propulsion. There's a talk on outfitting your boat for long distance cruising uh, and racing. Uh, that will be a panel discussion. There's another one on. Uh, I was trying to get the computer to actually work. Wood Wood Dynamics is the one. That yeah, is. Wood Dynamics. That's done by the guys up at UMO. That's that's interesting. Why, can you explain a little bit more just what wood dynamics is? I mean, both, well, Mike, Mike and I are both old boat carpenters, and uh, we think of wood dynamics as either you, it bends or it doesn't. Right. Uh, I think a lot of what they, they want uh, them to come down and talk is the practical application of some of the research that they do up at the uh, university. So they would take some of the stuff like I know they've had panels before in the past, both wood and composite. And they test the strength, you know, and then try to make it better with different types of layering. Uh, and actually, what we're looking for is, you know, how do you apply that to the common boat builder? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one of the big talks. That sounds very interesting. It's, do they get into uh, the, the dynamics of different species of wood and that sort of stuff, too? Yeah, they'll get into some of that, uh, but mostly it's going to be probably a lot of it will be composites because that's where the industry is right now. Hmm. And then the other last one is is going to be a lady from uh, Bath Ironworks is actually going to tell you how the destroy is, and maybe the Zumwalt goes together now. <laughs> it's a little uh, a kit boat thing, huh? Yeah, oh yeah. They come. Well, it used to be forty six or forty eight uh, units, and it's way down now. They don't. I think it's like almost half of that now that they lift up and weld together. Yep, yeah. amazing. Had dinner the other night, John, with my buddy Russell Ray, who was able to make dinner because they uh, uh, have not quite yet impaneled the jury for uh, his protest over the construction of those destroyers down there oh okay yeah 
And again, it's, uh, you know. Uh, What's his protest over? Oh, uh, peace on earth, man. Oh. Peace on earth, yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the deterrents. Yes. So this happens pretty much all day, uh, eight thirty to three thirty, down at the uh, down in Bath. At, yep. At, at the Bath Museum. Right? And students have got a special price, which isn't on the uh, conference uh, thing I've got in front of me. But a student at you know one of the schools, like uh, the boat school's not running, but the landing school apprentice shop is doing limited stuff, that sort of thing. They get a ten dollar uh, entry fee. Oh, that sounds And very... so some of the high school students, if they're interested, they're more than happy to come down and join us. Great. So all this information is available at your website, Main Boat Builders. Main Conf- Built Boats. Main Built Boats, yep. yep. Or how about MainBoatBuildersConference.com? Yep. That will work, too. Yep. Great. So it sounds very interesting. I, I'm the propulsion technology, I have to admit, I was uh, a little bit behind the curve when I saw an advertisement that showed uh, three outboards on the back end of a boat, and they were pointing in different directions. And I thought that, well, geez, something's wrong there. But uh, nowadays, no, it seems like they're hooked into GPSs and they can uh, work. Yeah, they can do all kinds of things. I don't know if it was the last time you were down at Newport, Rhode Island for the big boat show in September. No. But it's unbelievable to see. They had a hydrosport there this year, 53-foot with four seven marine engines on the stern those marine engines are probably $90,000 a pop the boat was 1.3 million and it's a center console yeah <laughs> center just for running about saturday afternoons well you know some of these guys think that they can take those out to the canyons and go fishing but yeah. i'm sorry i'd rather climb into you know, say the new, brand new uh, Morgan Bay 43. Oh, good Lord, something with a, like, something say, a couch a and a stove, yeah. Yeah. And a toilet. Yeah. That you don't have to crawl in the center console, yeah. It, yeah, I looked at one of them that I know I couldn't get in, and I'm somewhat nimble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, really? Huh. Yeah. John, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Um, every time I come uh, down the interstate and cross the bridge in Bangor, I look at the tugboat on the east side of the <laughs> river there and, and Brewer. That's yours, isn't it? Yes, it's mine. Yeah. What's happening there, man? Well, we're trying to fundraise. In fact, I've got a, a lady uh, working on it now to try to get her back to shape and actually go to museums and sit. She's a museum piece, really, because mm-hmm. she can't work. She's single-screwed. They don't want them anymore in the industry. So, you know, hopefully, because she's... There's not very many of her style left. Yeah, it's she's it's a railroad tug. A railroad tug. Yeah. When I first heard that term, I was uh, I was quite conflicted to define to define railroad tug. Yeah. She worked for the Reading Railroad. She hauling trains. Actually, I mean. Yeah, she worked uh, on the Delaware River hauling barges of coal. Yeah. For Reading. Yeah, yeah. And her original name was the Burn, B-E-R-N, and then she went. Most of her life was spent on the Delaware. Then she came to Boston in the 80s and worked as Saturn. And, well, if there was a little while in there, she was the Muriel McAllister. And then she came to May Maritime Academy in 98, I think, and I bought her in 03. And you uh, visit her every once in a while, make sure she's still tied in there. Oh, yeah, my stepson who went through the academy and works at Front Street Shipyard, he goes down and makes sure that she's everything's all set on her. Yeah. All right. It's a lovely boat, but, it, you know, because I do a lot of research, I just don't have the time to get down on border as much as I should. Yeah. 
No, like I say, I think of you every time I go over the bridge uh, across the uh, Penobscot River there, John. Yeah, she's a beautiful boat. Yeah. She really is, and somebody could really live aboard it. You know, I'd like somebody to take the project over because it's just too much on my plate. But. Yeah. Where, where can someone get more information on that? Call me. Call <laughs> oh, you. Okay. You, want you know, to... there's not a lot on her. You know, there's some, you know, information about her propulsion, what she's got inside. There's a little bit on her history. I, there may be a website that uh, Rob Crone put up uh, a couple of years ago. It may be on Facebook, and it was basically charting the progress of, you know, getting paint on her and getting into the engine room and doing things that we needed to do. But this fundraising campaign is actually going to see, is the public really care? You know, does the public really want to save these things anymore? You know, because it's a sizable chunk of change probably to get her ready and get her to be able to go to museums. We like to, in, uh, in Boat Talk, as much as possible, uh, put things in terms of dreams, John, you know. <laughs> Excu- well, most boaters are that way. It can yeah. excuse and explain a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, good to talk to you this morning. Uh, thank good you. Good talking for, with you. Thank, yeah. you for, yep. thank you, John. We are doing uh, sort of potpourri boat talk this morning. We and, are uh, you quite might scattered. think to give us a call, too, uh, uh, 1-800-800. Six two five nine three seven eight. Yes, one eight six 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 two five. See, I got it wrong. Alan's looking at it. I'm I'm turned sideways. Yeah. So yeah, one eight hundred. No, one eight six 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 two five. W e r u. We're talking about the uh, climate change there. One of the ways, uh, again, they say that uh, if we stop uh, burning uh, fossil fuels by twenty fifty. It's just a matter of, of whether we can graciously deal with what's already happening. That's not likely to happen. And uh, so what will happen is probably a great displacement of people and uh, economy as well. Which it's will, already started. And again, not a smooth uh, process. Some people uh, blame the uh, revolution in Syria on, uh, you know, uh, bad bad drought there, among other things, you yeah. know. Um we have pointed out uh, in, again, past Boat Talk, been trying to keep this thread going and, and expand on it um, continually, talked about a, a fellow from India named Amitav Ghosh, and his his scenario is called the armed lifeboat paradigm versus the politics of, of, uh, of uh, you know, um, uh, people uh, dying outside the armed lifeboat. And, again, it's uh, bound to get kind of ugly and... Uh, the matter is of what is the rate of rise that is going to be happening, no matter what switches on, can't be turned off. And uh, the recommendation is that we move inland and elevate ourselves uh, as graciously as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, may or may not be, uh, again, as, as things go on. In the meantime, about this from the Bangor Daily News, one of the world's biggest oil companies, that would be Exxon, is uh, working on hundreds of low carbon energy projects from algae engineered uh, engineered to bloom into biofuels and cells that turn emissions into electricity. And uh, this is uh, hedging their bets, so to speak, for the future, you know, because they ain't stupid. And they have been um, aware themselves of what's been going on. At the same time, they have been hedging, uh, you know, how they have shared it with... Uh, 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 bondholders, uh, stockholders, and others, you know, uh, citizens. Uh, and, again, we're all here together. 
you can ignore it at your own peril. Uh, insurance companies, the United States military, uh, you know, serious kind of responsible people uh, starting to get a little bit upset and worried. So, um, again, uh, it's happening. It is happening. And uh, it's just a matter of how much and when. So that's cheery news this morning. Uh, we could also talk about uh, my favorite one here was um, uh, we got algae fuels that um, can uh, be harvested from fuels and turned into biofuel. They now mix them with diesel and jet fuel. But the idea would be to 100% algae in your diesel engine someday. What is it? Um, that movie, uh, Back to the Future, when they powered their car with, with garbage. <laughs> yeah, biodiesel made from agricultural waste, like uh, corn husks that you could turn into biofuels. We're working on that. And uh, carbonated fuel cells. Uh, most fuel cells generate electricity by reacting with natural gas or hydrogen. These would react with carbon dioxide, which apparently we got extra. Yeah, we certainly do. We're making more all the time, too. Yeah. So, um, got to get to the girls, don't okay. we? Yeah, we're, might as well. We're ready. Yep. Uh, a lot of people have been seeing the news lately about two women who, in I believe it was June, left Hawaii on a trip to Tahiti, which normally takes about uh, two and a half, three weeks. Um, they the report was that at very shortly after they left Hawaii, they ran into a large storm and their boat was disabled. And they ended up drifting for five months, finally being picked up near Japan. Went north and west instead of south and, and uh, ended up 900 miles uh, south of Japan, run into a Taiwanese fishing boat, which gave them a tow and alarmed them greatly. The fishermen and the uh, uh, women on the boat were, uh, like say, uh, uh, women were very worried about the fishermen. They ended up uh, calling the U.S. Navy, who gave them a tow. Um, the boat was declared unseaworthy, but uh, it, quote, uh, become uh, the engine uh, stopped working the first night in a storm that was not forecasted or recorded in the in the uh, local vicinity. Where yeah, they say it was a, a storm that lasted uh, two days and three nights. A storm that large would have shown up on satellite or... Um, no imagery somewhere or another, and there was no evidence of any sort of storm. I can see getting a squall, a fast, hard squall, uh, confused in, uh, and elevated in your mind. But let's back up a little bit. This is a, um, it looks to me like a, um, it's a hard chine, looks to me like a, either a steel or aluminum boat that so. is a pretty, pretty capable looking boat. It, 50 feet, yeah. Yeah, looks. owned by this lady, uh, Jennifer Appel. Um, and out of Honolulu, and obviously had enough sailing experience to own this boat and untie it and go to Tahiti, uh, again, uh, a couple thousand miles south of Hawaii, uh, not with uh, a crew, but with her girlfriend. Right, yep. Yeah, this was not a crew that was stranded. This was a lady who took her girlfriend, and literally the girlfriend, when asked about the storm, Says, oh, I don't know. I'm a I'm a heavy sleeper, and and I went to bed that first night. Jennifer does everything. I you know, and uh, so Jennifer's kind of the uh, the the driving force behind all this, and basically the only sailor aboard. Um, she didn't do a lot of sailorly things in five months. Um, they never activated their EPIRB. They say they shot off flares and made radio calls, but they have an emergency position. Uh, 
indicating response beacon that they just tip upside down and a satellite will get the uh, signal and somebody yeah, will switch. It turns yeah. out it's easy. They but. also claim that they drifted for five months and they have a standing rig. Uh, the engine, uh, let's, let's grant them they can't get the engine going. Well, the, there's one thing that, you know, if you get into a storm and, and your engine quits, most likely it's because you've stirred up some crud from the bottom of your fuel tanks and you probably just need to clean out your, your fuel filter or your fuel line somehow. And it, it may or may not have is, a mechanic aboard. Yeah. It, and well, uh, may or may not know how trip, to, how to change a fuel filter that's even. Uh, part, you know. of, part of being a boat owner is knowing how to do some engine maintenance. Uh, again, uh, there were, com- she was confident enough to untie that boat and go to Tahiti without a, uh, capable crew person. So that's, Speaks of something or other. Yeah. Um, But the fact is that they had a standing mast. The mast was described as disabled. And what I read was that it had a bent spreader bolt. The spreaders are the are the uh, little sticks that stick sticks out that sideways. hang out sideways at right angles to the mast. Their only function is to get the wire that holds the mast up away from the mast at enough of an angle to uh, uh, make it a a reinforced kind of triangle there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all the spreader does. If the bolt is bent, doesn't matter a bit as long as the spreader is there. And if the spreader wasn't there, um, you would still have a standing. If, if you have any kind of standing mast, you have to put some kind of rag, bed sheet, sail on it. You could put something up a little ways, yes. And sail somewhere. And without, uh, and again, if the mast isn't down, you take the boom and you make a, you rig, jury rig something or other. They had a standing mast with the boom furled on the mast um, and apparently didn't try to sail the boat for a minute. That's not even comfortable. If they lie to hull, which means just drifting with the boat sideways to the waves, the boat's going to roll. It's going to rock back and forth a lot. Side, and, and all the dishes rattle, and I'm telling you, the dogs won't <laughs> the dogs like it. The dogs are throwing up. Yeah. They had plenty of food. They had a, um, a water maker, a desalinator. And lots of rice pasta and uh, oatmeal and two large-sized male dogs. And they run out of dog food. And they were being towed by these fishermen, which I guess is when they said they were fearful for their life for the next 24 hours because other than that, they were in good health. And, and again, the boat seemed fine. Uh, they did leave the boat, uh, declared unseaworthy by the Navy. Don't understand that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did not... And again, a theme that we've talked about, um, especially we've interviewed our friend Steve Callahan, 76 Days Adrift, a uh, New York Times bestselling book, our friend from Lemoyne. I'm told that a major publication called up Steve and asked him for his reaction on this story, and he had none because it's too stupid. Yeah. There's too many things wrong. Yeah. To even basically... We didn't, we didn't mention the shark attack. And a shark attack that um, the ladies reported, which defies... All known shark behavior. Right, yeah. 30 foot tiger sharks when the largest one known is 17 feet. And they said they were teaching their young and uh, bumping the boat and scaring the dogs. And, and again, uh, not saying any of these things happen, but stories um, stories are stories. And, uh, you know, when you're right in the middle of one, it looks different from, uh, and, and uh, you know, there may be some. Uh, levels of exaggeration but mm. again one of our themes for people lost at sea whether the, the people 51 days uh off the little island there that stole uncle's boat uh our friend michael finkel wrote about <laughs> oh, yeah um they didn't act to help themselves okay 
Uh, survivors uh, generally have to work at it. Steve Callahan was a phenomenal survivor. He By his own wits, he, he saved it. And yes. he worked hard at it, And uh, but he also uh, uh, knew what he was doing. People who just sit there and go, uh-oh. Boy, we're in trouble now. Generally die. <laughs> we don't hear much about them afterwards. Mm-hmm. And again, failure to help yourself by even jury rigging uh, a sail to cock the boat into the wind and make it sit better in, in the rolling waves is just, you know, yeah, it's unseamanlike. Even if you don't have a water maker, you can make drinking water if you have a propane stove by yeah. distillation. It's possible. My only thought is that these women wanted to be lost for a while. It seems like a lot of people are saying that's the sort of thing, and we're building up some fodder for perhaps a book later on. But perhaps the fantasy went slightly sideways. I'm not, you know, I can't say at all. But but again, it wasn't a crew. It was a, a lady who owned this boat with her girlfriend who knew nothing about the boat. The and, owner of the Honolulu Sailing Company, a sailing school and charter company who has sailed the route from Hawaii to Tahiti several times, said the normal tr- the trip normally takes about 70, seven days with sailors who stay on course, but he would not make such a trip with any less than three experienced sailors. Yeah, I've uh, not experienced the Pacific Ocean uh, delivery-wise. It's too bad. I've been offered, but I say it's too big for me, and I'm not interested. Well, in you've that. been out to Bermuda. That's quite yeah. a l- long jump, too. Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, the, uh, fabled South Seas, man, is, uh, no place to fool around with the quote Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, a bit of an oxymoron, uh, quite a few days, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. There are still, uh, some, uh, fairly dangerous waters in the South Pacific too, with, uh, just barely submerged reefs that are not marked and not a place I really, I would care to. Go sailing around. We're going to make be, the water I'd be deep. awful nervous. Well, the water's three-quarters, the planet's three-quarters water, Alan. There's more. Civil authority has issued required monthly test for the following counties or areas. Maine, at 10.55 a.m. on November 14, 2017 effective until 11.40 a.m. This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system for the state of Maine. If this were an actual emergency official information would follow the alert tones. Uh, the windstorm of 2017. There's another another uh, uh, global warming event. And again, saying uh, the, it's an ecosystem, it's all connected. We have a uh, kind of a radio ecosystem here, and we thank you for for being in it today. You know, and and how lucky is we to get to do boat talks? So there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Amy down in the engine room for keeping us on course. I used to buy the bins of boat, and I used to buy the sails, sir. I used to buy the catches of fish and take some home to lie, Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising